long day I got a lot to say It feels like I'm carrying a two-ton weight I go see a friend Hello, I'm Monsignor Patrick Winslow. And I am Father Matthew Kauth. And we are speaking from the rooftop. A podcast brought to you by 10 Books, in which we invite you to join our conversation out here in the open air. Where we look out upon the world around us from the rooftop of the church and share with you what we see. Makes me Good morning, Father Winslow. Good morning. How are you? Uh, Well, so this morning I went to put on my shoes and I took note of the fact that I used to be able to lift my legs up to put my shoe on. And actually, I had to actually grab a hold of my ankle with my hand. Pull it up close enough for me to put my shoes. Yeah, but this is level three because there was a time where we actually bent down and put no, the no, shoes no, no, on. No, 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 no. I think it's becoming an extreme sport. Just trying. I don't know what happens at night where like just things just lock in place. Do you remember that one time we both had plantar fasciitis? Oh gosh, it, it was, we, it was we, like could, we couldn't, couldn't walk down the stairs. And how did we both get it at the same time? We, we so were just, walking around the house as if there were nails everywhere. And I'm like, and I, and I looked at you and I said, do your feet hurt? <laughs> and, and you said, yeah, oh my God, they're killing me. And, uh, and I said, I said, mind you too. And then we started realizing that we both have plantar. But the thing is, there's nothing contagious. Yes. We, about, thought we, we got some disease. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, what are the odds? Oh, oh the body's a funny thing. Well, you know, my, remember Betty. Oh, gosh. The glorious Betty. Yeah, she used to say that aging is not for the faint of heart. Mm. It's uh, an extreme sport. It is. an extreme. Well, you know, you think about aging. I remind people that in the gospel it says that we are to become like little children again. Mm. And there's nothing like the, uh, the foil of the body to make you feel like a child. You become more dependent. Of course. You are become more limited. Uh, you know, simple things become complicated. There's something rather merciful, I suppose, about the entire thing. I think about my my dad, for example. He died, as you know, very early. Um, and he was a, a very strong man, a very sort of a man's man. And toward the end of his life, he developed uh, Addison's disease and some of the complications. And it so rocked his world. He wasn't able to do almost any of the things that he did prior to and was fearful of doing them because it's a kind of a disease that, that does attack to some degree your, your serotonin levels and various things. And so what was fascinating for me to watch was the way in which the Lord sort of humbled him by taking away his sense of his own power. And so there was a certain mercy about the entire sickness mm-hmm. that I can't pretend as if I'm strong. Um, not that one should desire to be weak. I mean, strength is a good thing. We don't, it's not a bad thing. At the same time, uh, wrongly employed, it, it certainly becomes one more platform or house of cards that we stand on thinking that, um, somehow I can, I can build something on my own. And so the striking of the tent, uh, those are the dogs, those in the, are background. the dogs, the, the striking, the striking of the tent, uh, as St. Paul says, 
is, is kind of a, a merciful reminder. I think about it in terms of memory as well. Um, because the body doesn't give you an example. So when I played basketball with the guys, um, it, it was rather, um, you mean back up in Linville? Well, that, that too. But when, when I, I said to you, <laughs> you are not 20 years old. You're playing with a bunch of 20 year olds. And I still do. No. And a half hour later, you were checked off in an ambulance. Well, to, I, yeah, the problem of a tendon was that ripped. Well, actually just a serious <laughs> problem that led to major surgery. And well, you know, but my words were prescient. They were prescient. You are no longer 20. And I'm still playing. The problem is now the recovery time is like two weeks. For one game of basketball. For bruise. <laughs> but but the, the thing about the memory is that is I, I, I can still play perfectly well. Like the memory doesn't catch up to your body. No. It doesn't mm. say, oh, by the way, um, you, you aren't capable of playing basketball. So I go up for a shot that I have certainly made uh, millions of times, as it were. And then instead of staying in the air while I'm doing the shot, I'm back on the ground like a third of the way through the move. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just staring like, why, why am I not in the air? <laughs> well, see, <clears throat> I, I, I discover that I have the same problem, except it's not doing some sort of layup. It's actually just walking in a straight line. <laughs> 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 in in my later years, I've had to deal with some vertigo where the inner ear gets out of balance, and oh my gosh, you know, I, I look like a, I must look like a fool. I'm you know very carefully trying to put one foot mm. in front of the other, as though I'm walking on the deck of a ship in the you know in the middle of a storm. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> There's something rather noble about growing old, insofar as. You know, before I was doing it, I, you know, of course you, this is the kind of age in which we, we worship youth and prowess and things of that nature and, and belittle and, and, and concern ourselves almost not at all with those who are aging or, or our wise ones, our elders, et cetera. And now that I'm becoming one, I want all that kind of respect, obviously, because I'm getting older. Um, what are these young whippersnappers? Yeah, but there's something rather heroic about it. Like you think to yourself, there are people that live their lives constantly in difficulty. And they realize that this, whatever this pathology is, is not getting any better. Even if it's just a bad back or a bad ankle or foot. And they live their lives. And it's rather heroic, really, in some ways. Well, you know, the, <clears throat> the church um, treats old age and aging as a serious illness. Mm. I mean, it be, it's a condition that warrants anointing of the sick. Mm. You know, it, <clears throat> you talk about having, you know, a grave or serious illness as a condition that warrants being anointed, receiving the sacrament, uh, which is primarily intended for the soul, but at the occasion or the moments in which the body is particularly suffering. So as to better unite one to Christ and to have this uh, suffering to be redeeming. And, uh, you know, we say in, in the Latin church that um, one has to have some type of serious illness to be admitted to the sacrament of the sick. And, and right there in the prenotando, the right, it says very clearly that aging is basically um, a cause, or you should say, uh, could say itself an illness. Mm. You know, it, it is um, acceptable to reach a certain age and say, I'm perpetually in a state of needing the sacrament of the sick. Right, absolutely. <laughs> well, we don't see it necessarily as some sort of thing that's remedial, that you're, you're engaging in something that can be um, 
redemptive in some sense for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it, death, of course, is, as St. Paul says, on the one hand, the wages of sin. On the other hand, we could also say that it's sort of natural for any composed substance to be able to fall apart, as things do in nature, right? That corruption generation. And yet we do hold that it's not natural for us insofar as we were given a preternatural gift to be able to sustain the body. And so the death isn't, in that sense, perfectly natural for us. And so aging is, you think about, there was a poem I read one time where it said that uh, wrinkles, and they were called the harbingers of death. Mm-hmm. Like they're the ones that remind you that the body's not going to, it's not going to um, snap back anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that line that you saw every time you smiled, it just stayed. (laughs) And it's not going away anymore. (laughs) Well, it is. So it is different um, to look at yourself in different decades. My philosophy is... Oh, heavens. Change your mental picture. I remember that. Change every single decade and change your mental picture because you're different. You look different. You just are. And, you know, I, I tell my mom all the time, you know, I say, Mom, once you reach the age of 70... Being thin is not healthy looking. It mm. just it just isn't. I yeah. mean, it may be healthy. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but it, I. But, but the reality is, having a little pump <laughs> makes you look healthy. You know, otherwise that gaunt look combined with the aging right, process, right, right, right. that's a hard look to to pull off. Well, maybe it's like a baby, right? The Lord, <clears throat> the Lord makes babies so nice and plump because if they fall down, right, they yeah, get all the padding. Exactly. And maybe it's sort of the same thing that ultimately, um, as we get a little older, <laughs> it's like putting pads on because we're going to fall. Exactly. The problem, <laughs> the problem is I'm not 70 yet. So I'm padding too soon. Yeah. So. <clears throat> padding too soon. But when I get there, boy, I'll, I'll pad away. Need <laughs> <laughs> my bags of candy and leave me alone. Oh, that's <clears throat> fantastic. You know, you're talking about this. The culture and youth. I, sorry for my, my voice. I don't know. It was a little scratchy. I think it's because we were talking a lot last night. Mm. Um, but we were talking about the youth and how our Western culture uh, really sort of prizes and idolizes uh, the young in many ways and not so much the elder or the wisdom. But yet it's my understanding, and I don't know for sure, but just based upon my experience, that in the Asian cultures, there tends to be uh, a great prizing of the older older folks and the wisdom that they bear. You know, it seems to me that we could learn a bit from mm. a culture. Now, in some cases, like with my father, where senility starts to kick in, you know, <laughs> you know the wisdom is is, tamp- is tamped down a bit. But um, in in cases where the you know you have clarity of mind. And there's a lot of there's a wealth that can be uh, that can be drawn upon. Right. You know, I look at these older people that are retired, and you know what's behind their eyes. What have they done in life? Right, right. What have they experienced? Right. Uh, so much can be gleaned. Of course, again, with my father, he doesn't want for opening his mouth and trying to tell you <laughs> all the lessons he's learned in life. I just ask his grandchildren. Well, there's something to it, right? I mean, even in even in the history of of, of art. When the virtues are depicted, for example, the cardinal virtues of temperance, justice, fortitude, and prudence, it's interesting to see how how traditionally those statues that are representing those virtues are depicted. Mm. And in the case of prudence, um, I, I remember 
thinking to myself, looking at a statue once in Italy, and I thought, I have no idea why this thing is so odd looking and grotesque. Because there was an old man's face on the back of a head and a young woman's face on the front That's of the so head. Odd. And I was trying to figure out what in the world this statue was representing. And I guess it's, very, it's a very, fairly common depiction. But the idea, of course, is that when you're looking back through your history and your life, um, you're aging, and so you're, you're, you're collecting those memories that give you capacity for prudence because you have more experience. I, mean, I think it was Aristotle that said you shouldn't even teach until like 40 or 50 yeah. because you don't have any experience to be able to bear upon a situation. Whereas your face in the front, because you're entering into something that's, that's perfectly new for you, it's, it's youthful, it's young. And so maybe the, the lesson to be gleaned is that <clears throat> the beauty of getting older is that you, you have something that brings to bear in a new situation that you didn't have before. We say about ourselves at this, this point in our lives, oftentimes that it's kind of a, it's kind of a peak moment for the investing of, of, of the, of the talents of the coins, because you have enough experience to be able to make right judgments or better judgments anyway about the present. So, yeah. So you have some coins to invest. Yeah. And then at the same time, what do you do with them? You, we haven't gotten to that point where we don't want to invest anything because we just, <laughs> We're just too, too tired <laughs> because the body can't do a layup and it just falls to the ground. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So, so what then, I mean, looking back, let's imagine you and your young face looking forward and now looking back on one point or another, where do you think you got something right? And where do you think you got something wrong? Hmm. I mean, we, you know, this isn't supposed to be true confessions. No, sure, sure. The, but, you know, for example, um, myself, I would say that when I was looking forward back then, I didn't take practical matters um, to heart. I just didn't. So I didn't think very practically. I, I didn't think about, um, like, my my next assignment. I didn't think about the consequences of a given assignment. I just, <clears throat> I just didn't think about those things. And, you know, now I look at some young people and they do, mm. and I think, boy, I just wasn't like that. But at the same time, I'm not saying that it was prudent or wise for me to ignore those things. Mm. Right. I think that I, I might've had, um, I might've been better had I paid a little more attention to some of the practicalities. Now that I get older, I, because of the memory that I bring and the experience. And I now say, okay, when I consider a situation, I look at all the practical elements, but that is a result of having learned. Mm. And I can tell you, yeah, all right. On the front end of my, of my life in the, in the priesthood coming up, through seminary and out of seminary, I just, I just didn't really look at those practical things. I just mm. kind of shot, <clears throat> I, I just shot, I, I guess, to the skies or to the distant horizon. I think it's, dovetailing on what you're saying it's ironically i think one of the things that i, I actually got right that that lack of um consideration <clears throat> can also kind of free you because you're you're not trying to weigh all the possible ramifications and consequences of a given action and so you're you're sort of hopeful about anything you do and often wrong about your capacities but nevertheless you're the the, the future is sort of uh, your oyster right as they say um and so I think the one thing that I got right was trying to throw myself at what I consider to be the highest thing. I just wasn't really satisfied 
<clears throat> I wasn't satisfied with um, the various options that I had before me, even though I thought the options were the, were fantastic in themselves, the things that I, were, I was shooting for in terms of my life's project. And yet when I got into them or tasted them, I said, is this, is this it? Is this, is this all that life has to offer? Um, and so the one thing I, I, I did get right is I was sort of tenacious about trying to throw myself at what I would consider to be the highest possible use of my life. And that I think I did. And I think you did too, mm-hmm. um, just relative to the priesthood. No, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, where I was terribly impractical. All right, you know, let's go on a trip to this. Okay. Hop in a car. Mm. And then you arrive, you know, eight hours later. And you're like, oh, I really didn't think this through. There's no place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it's just like terribly impractical. But you're right. I think that there is an aspect to it um, that is getting it right. Because, I mean, this is where we, we, we touch upon the, the vision of faith yeah. uh, as a supernatural virtue and hope and that interplay. Because it gives us the capacity to see um, that eternal horizon right, that only right. the eyes of faith can see and allow you to make track adjustments in the here and now according to that, that horizon. And without that supernatural gift of hope... Uh, dragging that eternal present, uh, that eternal, f- that eternal future into the present moment, then y- y- you're without the, the proper bearings ultimately. Yeah, that's uh, true. And you're rudderless. Well, well, maybe not rudderless, but you have the wrong rudders. You have the wrong rudders. Yeah. And and so that that uh, that gift of hope is extra. You, you know, you know, I've had this oh, constant Charles dialogue Pagee, Charles about Pagee. yeah about hope. This is um an, a French author. He had. You've been um, an atheist, part of the Enlightenment movement, early part of the 1900s. And um, he had a conversion to to the Catholic faith. uh, And he was uh, a poet, an author. He wrote a trilogy on faith, hope, and love. And they're long poems, you know, like 140 pages each kind of thing. But uh, they're written in French. uh, But they don't depend on like a rhyme scheme. Mm. So it's not Shakespeare like sure. that, but it's actually <clears throat> sort of a poetry of images. So it translates fairly well, even though translations of such a thing will never ever be like the original. And I can't read French, so there's no way I can read the original. But I do read a translation of it, and it's really very beautiful. I think that the images and the concepts for me they really come to the fore of the page, and I find them very provocative and interesting. And <clears throat> Back in seminary, when I was finishing up, before, right before I was ordained, we had that eschatology course, and I did... Um, were you in that class with me? Maybe I was, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dr. Castorella. Yes, yes, yes. And, of course, he gave us a term paper, and I completely missed the mark because I didn't write a term paper. I wrote a 25-page reflection on, <laughs> on this poem. But, you know, so he's, I remember I, when I got my uh, paper back, He's like, great, really great paper, just not the assignment. You know? Exactly. <laughs> you made it work for you. Yeah, I made it work for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, that moment. But to be honest, one of the best papers ever written because right. what it did it impacted your for life. reflection, it had a real impact. Yeah. And so that, that, that notion of hope and uh, what the supernatural gift of hope can do from, a pra- from the practical perspective is to grab a hold of that of eternity, bring it into the present, and it changes the way mm. you see the current moment. So I could be in a circumstance and it could be kind of dark and grim and I don't have a lot of options and things seem like a little bit despairing. But if if through the supernatural virtues operating in me, 
especially that of hope, can see that eternal horizon and pull it into this moment, then suddenly the lens through which I perceive the current moment is different. Right. It's right. just different. I can see these things as crossings. I can see these things as the possibility for redemptive suffering. Right. Right. I can see that there's good that, that somehow God has a plan a plan. Right. No, that's exceptionally important. I, I think that even on natural hope, prescinding from supernatural hope, imagine let's just to use an example, it's summertime. Right. So now we're on summer vacation. Mm -hmm. And if your summertime is filled with basically sort of a vacuum. There's not a whole lot to look forward to. That was the dog, by the way. There's not a whole lot, a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Imagine though, if your summertime means that in two weeks, you're going to go on this trip with your friends, or right. in two weeks, the person that I haven't seen for a long time and can't wait to see is coming. Mm -hmm. It fills your present mm -hmm. with a kind of excitement and a longing and, and, and a directory, um, a trajectory that, that fills it and right. you get moving forward. That's the image that Piggy had. I remember of the, the three sisters, right? Yes. Faith, hope, and love. And, and hope was the little girl between the two big sisters mm -hmm. of faith and charity. And she was holding their hands in some sense, leading them forward, bringing them into the future. Yep. Um, and so when we're talking about supernatural hope, talking about actually filling that emptiness, realizing that, that no spot in time uh, is without redemptive possibilities and, and glory and merit and, and participation in, in the divine, um, uh, the divine plan and providence. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderfully exciting uh, filling the present with something that's real, as opposed to just trying to fill up time, or as we say, oftentimes wasting time, mm. um, but time becomes pregnant with, with purpose. There's, there's a, if, if we were to say though, the, the downside, as you mentioned of, because youth is the time in which to throw yourself at something because you're, you're excited to do so. And it, it's when grand gestures are made. It's when marriages are supposed to happen mm -hmm. and, and vocations are beginning to, uh, to be lived, et cetera. Um, and aspirations are high because we, we, because we realize that we're not all that we thought that we were, it, it doesn't happen as readily when we get older. And I, in some sense, I would say that's the very thing that I got wrong oftentimes and, and still do, is that instead of, instead of attempting to become the thing that I saw, in large part, I just sort of pretended to be there. Mm. And it, it, it robbed me of the kind of step-by-step -step process of finding persons to ask questions of and having real mentors or taking the time to, to manifest the fact that I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, that sort of the, the, realization of one's own um, ineptitude or ignorance uh, that comes with, with more age um, has been unwelcomed, <laughs> but at the painful. same time, painful, but at the same time now I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Because yeah. one doesn't have to pretend. Well, yeah, it, 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 the word that comes to mind when you say that is precocious, mm. you know, just sort of, sure. um, you know, you know, like a little three-year-old presenting herself as a eighteen-year-old. You know? And it, maybe it's it's a bit more of a problem or a hazard in the priesthood, simply because you all of a sudden at 25, 26 years old, you become a priest, and people that are twice your age call you father. Right. So you sort of have so to kind of, you, you, you drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're there. I suppose it, maybe it's the way for parents too, right? I mean, they have that first child. I mean, they kind of have to pretend as if they know what they're doing. Well, you know, there, there is, I think, a matter of 
just showing up and doing yes, it. Yes. Right? You, you would say that you cultivate it by the doing and you develop those muscles and things. But mm. at the same time, if you begin to think that you're actually this, you know, strong body, that's right. when really you're just kind of a little guy who can lift a weight here and there. Uh, okay, you're, you're not in touch with really how you are. Mm. You know, you, mm. you see yourself mm. and not, and not as you really are. And yeah, you, and then life is going to painfully point out to you yes. that you can't lift that weight. <laughs> That's right. At least not twice. Well, it's funny that, you, you know, um, our friend uh, Joe Ozog, he, it was a great lesson that he once taught me. Uh, we were bike riding in, in uh, Park City, and that's where all of the athletes, the Olympic athletes oh, yeah. train, yeah. right? The thin air. And so we were, we were on a ride, and it was a difficult ride for me, which means that he didn't even notice it, um, <laughs> and climbing some mountain. And I remember him saying that you never... You, you you never go um, peacock. I forget the word that he actually used, but you don't you don't sort of boast or strut in Park City about your athletic prowess because someone is near you that can destroy you, no matter how good you are, whatever you think is possible, because you can climb this mountain, you can run this hill or whatever. There, there are Olympians amongst us. That's right, <laughs> and you're not one of them. <laughs> so be careful who you brag to. It's true. It's true. Oh, gosh. You know, I remember in, in Reading Piggy, you talk about the three little girls, well, the three women, Faith, Hope, and Charity, where um, Charity is, I think, the motherly figure, and um, Faith is the bridal figure, and uh, Hope is the little girl. And he says that <clears throat> as the three walk along the way, she circles around their the hems of their skirts mm. wanders off and comes back and he points out that in the end when they finally arrive at the end of their journey that she's walked twice the distance that the other two have that she, her little legs have done mm. more of yeah. a journey than a beautiful the other two and he goes on to kind of fill that out uh, again all obviously these are images and metaphors um he goes on to say you know hope goes where faith and charity often stop. And so it, it brings up that image of the prodigal son. So you have the son, he abandons charity and love of the father. He abandons um, selfless, selflessness. Um, he will abandon fidelity and, and, and faith. But while he's you know, with the pigs and the swine in a barn, hungering for something to eat, hope is there. Mm. Mm. Because she traveled to the darkness where charity and faith have long been eschewed. And so her little legs go farther, they That's go beautiful. deeper. And that hope awakens in him that possibility to return to the father who becomes reacquainted with the fidelity and the love of his father. And so you can see uh, how, what he means in this image where she runs around the hems of the skirts and she wanders off and comes back that at the end of the journey, at the end of life, faith walked twice, three times, four times more than faith did or hope did. I'm sorry. Hope did. Hope did. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I, 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 I didn't have enough coffee. <laughs> so, no, the, the hope. I love that. <laughs> the hope walked, you know, that. two, three, four times. I love that. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful. Image. And it's true. I mean, think about it in the course of your own life, right? Um, you know, there are times in which uh, maybe there's a struggle of faith and a struggle with charity and love and selflessness in one's vocation. And it's, it, it's hope yeah. that pulls you back. You know, mm-hmm. hope who who sits there in the, you know, in, in the threshing floor of the barn near the swine, and, mm. and 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 says you can go back. I love that. That's beautiful. Well, I must away to many things. So perhaps before we go, you have something to share. Oh, what do we call this? Uh, before, before we go. We go yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Before, before we go into senility, <laughs> talk <we> about memory. <laughs> before I go take my mid-morning nap. Um, it is a Saturday, so we are um, not uh, dissipating the morning of a work day because, gosh. We, we were, all right, here's one more thing. I was thinking about my life as a parish priest, and I, I did not realize at the time how much discretionary time I had. Mm. I did not realize at oh, the time... Nice. How, um, you know, with all my responsibilities, I still had a heck of amount of discretionary time and a lot of latitude in controlling my life. In the current position in which I find myself uh, in helping to administrate a diocese, I, I, have, I have time in the margins. Mm. Um, and if I had thought about the type of day that I live Back when I was a pastor at a big parish, I would have said I could do that maybe once or twice a week. I couldn't do this all the time. Mm. And now it's my norm. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying I'm doing it well, but I'm just saying it's my norm. And it is extraordinary to consider at a given moment where you thought you were busy. You thought you had lots of things to do back when. And with a new role or a new position, you realize, yeah, I was wrong. Mm. I I was completely wrong. I'm busy now. I think it's it's hard to live um, with that kind of RPM, the consistent RPM, as it were. Um, I think you are doing it well. And in some mm-hmm. sense, I think it brings out, oftentimes it can bring out, if it's engaging in good things, the best in us, because we've all been in that position of not having quite enough to do, and then nothing gets done. Yeah, like that's the, true. The days we're most productive nothing. is usually yeah. when the day is, is difficult. Inertia. That's an cool. object of motion stays much, but an object at rest <laughs> stays at rest. Until the bishop says otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I was fascinated recently by an article. Um, you know, if you think about entropy or this, this movement Ooh, toward, I know, your language, movement <laughs> toward like disorder or chaos, et cetera. The article was talking about synchronicity and it was, it was a fascinating, uh, topic insofar as Things that are aligning um, by giving an example, fireflies, right? The fireflies are all over the place, right? It's summertime and, and they're coming out right now. And, and you see them blinking here, there, and everywhere. Chemiluminescence. Whatever that is, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what they, what they end up finding is that they begin to synchronize their blinking uh, just because really? of their proximity. They do not. They do. They're like lighting um, up runways with the other flies. <laughs> they, will, they will begin to synchronize. Um, Flight patterns. It's fascinating. So this article was going through um, various examples like metronomes placed near each other or the way in which um, things will pick up even on just vibrations around and, 
and synchronize themselves to the vibrations that they feel. So the metronomes, for example, that were that were on a ship that the person discovered the clocks that were had the um, the, the movements would begin to synchronize because of the constant yeah. movement of the ship. Because of certain subtleties. Fascinating to me because I, I'm always on this uh, search for uh, what philosophy would call the, the common good. That is to say, we're not isolated, fragmented individuals, but we're, we're part of something larger. We're part of a whole, which is the thing that sort of grates against the individual and, and the, the rugged and, and radical individualization of, of the human person that we find philosophically now, that we're part of something more. And people want to be part of something more. I don't want to go back into a, a larger discussion. We can have this uh, perhaps at another, another time. But, but even the fact that because we have bodies, the bodies pick up on things, small amounts of, of movement and vibration, and we'll begin to synchronize with the bodies around them. I find that to be very divinely providential and that a sign of the common good. When as I see the sun coming through the window, I think, you know, we're all synchronized around, mm. the, you know, the, the orbits and things, the mm. spinning of the earth around time sure. and the way in which we are sleeping habits and we sleep at night and we wake at day typically. And, and I mean, there are, yeah, it's really interesting to consider all these synchronicities. Mm. But it's interesting to consider, you know, are there pure spiritual forces also at play that can create some synchronicity? So could you be at a place where there's something spiritually going on? And could these little spiritual forces have that same sort of effect mm. of uh, not without you knowing, mm. shifting you and everybody in that house in a direction or... And that kind of brings in well, you know, issues we, of hauntings. <laughs> it's true. I mean, but even, even when we talked about last time, um, relative to walking into someone's cloud, yes, uh, relative to their unpleasantness or their bad mood, which is still because passions or feelings, they're still bodily. Yeah. We're picking up on it, but yeah, they're bodily. And where's that bridge to the next level? What are you picking up on when you walk into a room and you've walked into a cloud of something malevolent or, on the contrary, something graceful? Yeah. Perhaps a topic for another time. Indeed. Have a great day. God bless you all. Ciao. Makes me wanna scream from rooftop to the screen. Thanks for listening to this episode of From the Rooftop. For updates about new episodes, special guests, and exclusive deals for From the Rooftop listeners, sign up at rooftoppodcast.com and remember for more great ways to deepen your faith check out all the spiritual resources available at tanbooks.com and we'll see you again next time from the rooftop rooftop